0: Chapter twenty one of the financier by Theodore Dreiser. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The vagaries of passion, subtleties, risks, what sacrifices are not laid willfully upon its altar. In a little while, this more than average residence to which Cowperwood had referred was prepared solely to effect a satisfactory method of concealment. The house was governed by a seemingly recently bereaved widow, and it was possible for Eileen to call without seeming strangely out of place. In such surroundings, and under such circumstances, it was not difficult to persuade her to give herself wholly to her lover, governed as she was, by her wild and unreasoning affection and passion. In a way, there was a saving element of love, for truly, above all others, she wanted this man... She had no thought or feeling toward any other. All her mind ran toward visions of the future, when, somehow, she and he might be together for all time. Mrs. Cowperwood might die, or he might run away with her at thirty-five when he had a million. Some adjustments would be made, somehow. Nature had given her this man. She relied on him implicitly. When he told her that he would take care of her so that nothing evil should befall, She believed him fully. Such sins are the commonplaces of the confessional. It is a curious fact that by some subtlety of logic in the Christian world, it has come to be believed that there can be no love outside the conventional process of courtship and marriage. One life, one love, is the Christian idea, and into this sluice or mold it has been endeavoring to compress the whole world pagan thought held no such belief. A writing of divorce for trivial causes was the theory of the elders, and in the primeval world, nature apparently holds no scheme for the unity of two beyond the temporary care of the young. That the modern home is the most beautiful of schemes, when based upon mutual sympathy and understanding between two, need not be questioned. And yet this fact should not necessarily carry with it a condemnation of all love not so fortunate as to find so happy a denouement. Life cannot be put into any mold, and the attempt might as well be abandoned at once. Those so fortunate as to find harmonious companionship for life should congratulate themselves and strive to be worthy of it. Those not so blessed, though they be written down as pariahs, have yet some justification. And besides, whether we will or not, theory or no theory, the basic facts of chemistry and physics remain. Like is drawn to like. Changes in temperament bring changes in relationship. Dogma may bind some minds, fear others. But there are always those in whom the chemistry and physics of life are large and in whom neither dogma nor fear is operative. Society lifts its hands in horror, but from age to age the Hellens, the Messalinas, the Dewberries, the Pompadours, the Maintenons, and the Nenguins flourish and point a freer basis of relationship than we have yet been able to square with our lives. These two felt unutterably bound to each other. Cowperwood, once he came to understand her, fancied that he had found the one person with whom he could live happily the rest of his life. She was so young, so confident, so hopeful, so undismayed. All these months since they had first begun to reach out to each other, he had been hourly contrasting her with his wife. As a matter of fact, his dissatisfaction, though it may be said to have been faint up to this time, was now surely tending to become real enough. Still his children were pleasing to him, his home beautiful. Lillian, phlegmatic and now thin, was still not homely. All these years had found her satisfactory enough, but now his dissatisfaction with her began to increase. She was not like Eileen, not young, not vivid, not as unschooled in the common places of life. And while ordinarily he was not one who was inclined to be quarreless, still now on occasion he could be. He began by asking questions concerning his wife's appearance, irritating little whys, which are so trivial and yet so exasperating and discouraging to a woman. Why didn't she get a mauve hat nearer, the shade of her dress? Why didn't she go out more? Exercise would do her good. Why didn't she do this? Why didn't she do that? He scarcely noticed that he was doing this, but she did and she felt the undertone, the real significance, and took umbrage. "'Oh, why, why,' she retorted one day curtly. "'Why do you ask me so many questions? You don't care so much for me any more. That's why. I can tell.' He leaned back, startled by the thrust. It had not been based on any evidence of anything, save his recent remarks. But he was not absolutely sure. He was just the least bit sorry that he had irritated her, and he said so. Oh, it's all right, she replied. I don't care. But I notice that you don't pay so much attention to me as you used to. It's your business now, first, last, and all the time. You can't get your mind off of that. He breathed a sigh of relief. She didn't suspect then. But after a little time, as he grew more and more in sympathy with Eileen, he was not so disturbed as to whether his wife might suspect or not He began to think, on occasion, as his mind followed the various ramifications of the situation, that it would be better if she did. She was really not of the contentious fighting sort. He now decided, because of various calculations in regard to her character, that she might not offer as much resistance to some ultimate rearrangements as he had originally imagined. She might even divorce him. Desire, dreams, even in him, were evoking calculations not as sound as those which ordinarily generated in his brain no as he now said to himself the rub was not nearly so much in his own home as it was in the butler family his relations with edward malia butler had become very intimate he was now advising him constantly in regard to handling of his securities which were numerous butler held stocks and such things as the Pennsylvania Coal Company, the Delaware and Hudson Canal, the Morris and Essex Canal, the Reading Railroad. As the old gentleman's mind had broadened to the significance of the local street-railway problem in Philadelphia, he had decided to close out his other securities at such advantageous terms as he could, and reinvest the money in local lines. He knew that Mollenhauer and Simpson were doing this, and they were excellent judges of the significance of local affairs. Like Cowperwood, he had the idea that if he controlled sufficient of the local situation in this field, he could at least affect a joint relationship with Mollenhauer and Simpson. Political legislation, advantageous to the combined lines, could then be so easily secured. Franchises and necessary extensions to existing franchises could be added. This conversion of his outstanding stock in other fields, and the picking up of odd lots in the local street railway, was the business of Cowperwood. Butler, through his sons, Owen and Callum, were also busy planning a new line and obtaining a franchise, sacrificing, of course, great blocks of stock and actual cash to others in order to obtain sufficient influence to have the necessary legislation passed. Yet it was no easy matter. Seeing that others knew what the general advantages of the situation were, and because of this, Cowperwood, who saw the great source of profit here, was able betimes to serve himself, buying blocks a part of which only went to Butler, Mollenhauer, or others. In short, he was not as eager to serve Butler or anyone else as he was to serve himself if he could. In this connection, the scheme which George W. Stenner had brought forward, representing actually in the background Strobik, Wycroft, and Harmon, was an opening wedge for himself. Stenner's plan was to loan him money out of the city treasury at 2%, or if he would waive all commissions for nothing. An agent for self-protective purposes was absolutely necessary, and with it, take over the North Pennsylvania Company line on Front Street, which, because of the shortness of its length, one mile and a half, and the brevity of the duration of its franchise was neither doing very well, nor being rated very high. Cowperwood, in return for his manipulative skills, was to have a fair portion of the stock, 20%. Strobik and Wycroft knew the parties from whom the bulk of the stock could be secured if engineered properly. Their plan was then, with his borrowed treasury money, to extend its franchise, and then the line itself, and then later again, by issuing a great block of stock and hypothecating it with a favored bank, be able to return the principal to the city treasury and pocket their profits from the line as earned. There was no trouble in this, in so far as Cowperhood was concerned, except that it divided the stock very badly among those various individuals, and left him but a comparatively small share, for his thought and pains. But Cowperwood was an opportunist, and by this time his financial morality had become special and local in its character. He did not think it was wise for anyone to steal anything from anybody where the act of taking or profiting was directly and plainly considered stealing. That was unwise, dangerous, hence wrong. There were so many situations wherein what one might do in the way of taking or profiting was open to discussion and doubt. Morality varied, in his mind at least, with conditions, if not climates. Here in Philadelphia, the tradition, politically, mind you, not generally, was that the city treasurer might use the money of the city without interest, so long as he returned the principal intact. The city treasury and the city treasurer like a honey-laden hive and a queen bee around which the drones, the politicians, swarmed in the hope of profit. The one disagreeable thing in connection with his transaction with Stenner was that neither Butler, Mollenhauer nor Simpson, who were the actual superiors of Stenner and Strobik, knew anything about it. Stenner and those behind him were, through him, acting for themselves. If the larger powers heard of this it might alienate them. He had to think of this. Still, if he refused to make advantageous deals with Stenner or any other man influential in local affairs, he was cutting off his nose to spite his face, for other bankers and brokers would, and gladly. And besides, it was not at all certain that Butler, Mollenhauer, and Simpson would ever hear. In this connection, there was another line, which he wrote on occasionally, the 17th and 19th Street line, which he felt was a much more interesting thing for him to think about, if he could raise the money. It had originally been capitalized for $500,000, but there had been a series of bonds to the value of $250,000 added for improvements, and the company was finding great difficulty in meeting the interest. The bulk of the stock was scattered about among small investors, and it would require all of $250,000 to collect it and have himself elected president or chairman of the board of directors. Once in, however, he could vote this stock as he pleased, hypothecating it, meanwhile, at his father's bank for as much as he could get, and issuing more stock with which to bribe legislators in the matter of extending the line and in taking up other opportunities to either add to it by purchase or supplement it by working agreements. The word bribe is used here in this matter-of-fact American way because bribery was what was in everyone's mind in connection with the state legislature. Terence Relihan, the small, dark-faced Irishman, a dandy in dress and manners, who represented the financial interests at Harrisburg and who had come to Cowperwood after the five-million bond deal had been printed had told him that nothing could be done at the capitol without money or its equivalent negotiable securities each significant legislator if he yielded his vote or his influence must be looked after if he cowperwood had any scheme which he wanted handled at any time relahan had intimated to him that he would be glad to talk with him cowperwood had figured on the seventeenth and nineteenth street line scheme more than once but he had never felt quite sure that he was willing to undertake it. His obligations in other directions were so large, but the lure was there, and he pondered and pondered. Stenner's scheme of loaning him money, wherewith to manipulate the Northern Pennsylvania Line deal, put this 17th and 19th Street dream in a more favorable light. As it was, he was constantly watching their certificates of loan issue for the city treasury, buying large quantities when the market was falling to protect it, and selling heavily, though cautiously, when he saw it rising, and to do this he had to have a great deal of free money to permit him to do it. He was constantly fearful of some break in the market which would affect the value of all his securities and result in the calling of his loans. There was no storm in sight. He did not see that anything could happen in reason but he did not want to spread himself out too thin. As he saw it now, therefore, if he took $150,000 of this city money and went after the 17th and 19th Street matter, it would not mean that he was spreading himself out too thin. For because of this new proposition, could he not call on Stener for more as a loan in connection with these other ventures? But, if anything should happen, well... "'Frank,' said Stener strolling into his office one afternoon after four o'clock when the main rush of the day's work was over. The relationship between Cowperwood and Stener had long since reached the Frank and George period. Strobik thinks he has that North Pennsylvania deal arranged so that we can take it up if we want to. The principal stockholder, we find, is a man by the name of Coltan, not like Colton, but Ferdinand. How's that for a name?' Stenner beamed fatly and genially. Things had changed considerably for him since the days when he had been fortuitously and almost indifferently made city treasurer. His method of dressing had so much improved since he had been inducted into office, and his manner expressed so much more good feeling, confidence, aplomb, that he would not have recognized himself if he had been permitted to see himself, as had those Who had known him before. An old, nervous shifting of the eyes had almost ceased, and a feeling of restfulness, which had previously been restlessness, and had sprung from a sense of necessity, had taken its place. His large feet were encased in good, square-toed, soft-leather shoes. His stocky chest and fat legs were made somewhat agreeable to the eye by a well-cut suit of brownish-gray cloth, and his neck, was now surrounded by a low, wing-point white collar and brown silk tie. His ample chest, which spread out a little lower, in a round and constantly enlarging stomach, was ornamented by a heavy link gold chain, and his white cuffs had large gold cuff buttons set with rubies of a very notable size. He was rosy and decidedly well-fed. In fact, he was doing very well indeed. He had moved his family from a shabby two-story frame house in South Ninth Street to a very comfortable brick one, three stories in height and three times as large on Spring Garden Street. His wife had a few acquaintances, the wives of other politicians. His children were attending the high school, a thing which he had hardly hoped for in earlier days. He was now the owner of fourteen or fifteen pieces of cheap real estate, in different portions of the city, which might eventually become very valuable. And he was a silent partner in the South Philadelphia Foundry Company and the American Beef and Pork Company, two corporations on paper whose principal business was subletting contracts secured from the city to the humble butchers and foundrymen who would carry out orders as given and not talk too much or ask questions." "'Well, that is an odd name,' said Cowperwood, blandly so he has it. I never thought that road would pay as it was laid out. It's too short. It ought to run about three miles further out, into the Kensington section." "'You're right,' said Stener dully. "'Did Strobik say what Colton wants for his shares?' "'68, I think. The current market rate. He doesn't want much, does he? Well, George, at that rate it will take about,' he calculated quickly, on the basis of the number of shares Cotton was holding. One hundred and twenty thousand to get him out alone. That isn't all. There's Judge Kitchen and Joseph Zimmerman and Senator Donovan. He was referring to the state senator of that name. You'll be paying a pretty fair price for that stud when you get it. It will cost considerably more to extend the line. It's too much, I think. Cowperwood was thinking how easy it would be to combine this line with his dreamed-of 17th and 19th Street line. And after a time, and with this in view, he added, "'Say, George, why do you work all your schemes "'through Strobik and Harmon and Wycroft? "'Couldn't you and I manage some of these things for ourselves alone, "'instead of three or four? "'It seems to me that plan would be much more profitable to you.' "'It would, it would!' exclaimed Stener his round eyes fixed on Cowperwood in a rather helpless, appealing way. He liked Cowperwood, and had always been hoping that mentally, as well as financially, he could get close to him. I've thought of that, but these fellows have had more experience in these matters than I have had, Frank. They've been longer at the game. I don't know as much about these things as they do. Cowperwood smiled in his soul, though his face remained passive. "'Don't worry about them, George,' he continued genially and confidentially. "'You and I, together, can know and do as much as they ever could, and more, I'm telling you. Take this railroad deal you're in on now, George. You and I could manipulate that just as well and better that it can be done with Wycroft, Strobik, and Harmon in on it. They're not adding anything to the wisdom of the situation. They're not putting up any money. You're doing that.' All they're doing is agreeing to see it through the Legislature and the Council. And as far as the Legislature is concerned, they can't do any more with that than anyone else could. Than I could, for instance. It's all a question of arranging things with Relihan. Anyhow, putting up a certain amount of money for him to work with. Here in town, there are other people who can reach the Council, just as well as Strobik. He was thinking once he controlled a road of his own, of conferring with Butler and getting him to use his influence. It would serve to quiet Strobik and his friends. I'm not asking you to change your plans on this North Pennsylvania deal. You couldn't do that very well. But there are other things. In the future, why not let's see if you and I can't work some one thing together? You'll be much better off, and so will I. "'We've done pretty well on the city loan proposition so far, haven't we?' The truth was, they had done exceedingly well. Aside from what the higher powers had made, Stenner's new house, his lots, his bank account, his good clothes, and his changed and comfortable sense of life were largely due to Cowperwood's successful manipulation of these city loan certificates. Already, there had been four issues of $200,000 each, Cowperwood had bought and sold nearly $3 million worth of these certificates, acting one time as a bull and another as a bear. Stenner was now worth all of $150,000. "'There's a line I know of here in the city which could be made into a splendidly paying property,' continued Cowperwood meditatively. "'If the right things could be done with it. Just like this North Pennsylvania line, it isn't long enough.' The territory it serves isn't big enough. It ought to be extended. But if you and I could get it, it might eventually be worked with this North Pennsylvania company or some other as one company. That would save officers and offices and a lot of things. There is always money to be made out of a larger purchasing power." He paused and looked out the window of his handsome little hardwood office, speculating upon the future. The window gave nowhere save into a back yard behind another office building which had formerly been a residence. Some grass grew feebly there. The red wall and old-fashioned brick fence which divided it from the next lot reminded him somehow of his old home in Newmarket Street, to which his uncle Seneca used to come as a Cuban trader, followed by his black Portuguese servitor. He could see him now as he sat here looking at the yard. "'Well,' asked Stenner, ambitiously, taking the bait, "'why don't we get hold of that, you and me? "'I suppose I could fix it, so far as the money is concerned. "'How much would it take?' "'Cowperwood smiled inwardly again. "'I don't know exactly,' he said after a time. "'I want to look into it more carefully. "'The one trouble is that I'm carrying a good deal of the city's money as it is. "'You see?' I have that two hundred thousand dollars against your city loan deals, and this new scheme will take two or three hundred thousand more. If that were out of the way. He was thinking of one of the inexplicable stock panics, those strange American depressions, which had so much to do with the temperament of the people and so little to do with the basic conditions of the country. If the North Pennsylvania deal were through and done with, he rubbed his chin and pulled at his handsome, silky mustache. "'Don't ask me any more about it, George,' he said finally, as he saw that the latter was beginning to think as to which line it might be. "'Don't say anything at all about it. I want to get my facts exactly right, and then I'll talk to you. I think you and I can do this thing a little later, when we get the North Pennsylvania scheme under way. I'm so rushed just now, I'm not sure that I want to undertake it at once. But you keep quiet, and we'll see. He turned toward his desk, and Stener got up. "'I'll make any size deposit with you that you wish, the moment you think you're ready to act, Frank,' exclaimed Stener, and with the thought that Cowperwood was not nearly as anxious to do this as he should be, since he could always rely on him, Stener, when there was anything really profitable in the offing. Why should not the able and wonderful Cowperwood be allowed to make the two of them rich? Just notify Styers, and he'll send you a check. Strobik thought we ought to act pretty soon. I'll tend to it, George, replied Cowperwood confidently. It will come out. All right. Leave it to me. Stenner kicked his stout legs to straighten his trousers and extended his hand. He strolled out into the street thinking of this new scheme. Certainly, if he could get in with Cowperwood right, he would be a rich man, for Cowperwood was so successful and so cautious. His new house, this beautiful banking office, his growing fame, and his subtle connections with Butler and others put Stener in considerable awe of him. Another line? They would control it, and the North Pennsylvania. Why, if this went on, he might become a magnate. He really might. He, George W. Stener once a cheap real estate and insurance agent. He strolled up the street thinking, but with no more idea of the importance of his civic duties and the nature of the social ethics against which he was offending than if they had never existed. End of chapter 21